0: All right, Rebecca. Well, first, thank you for allowing me to uh, invade your house and meet your dog. And uh, uh, it's great to meet you and welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: You got it. Uh, I always like to start by getting a, a bit of like a, a background story of of uh, nonprofit leaders and people I, I meet and get to interview. Um, what's the path to you taking over an organization or becoming the executor, executive director of uh, of what you're doing now? How did you get to that point?
1: Well, of course it wasn 't a straight line <laughs> <laughs> it wasn 't quick and easy sure. um, uh, i don 't know how far back you we should go um, but i I have felt just incredibly fortunate in my career because I went to law school and uh, about two thirds of the way through law school, I decided i didn 't want to be a lawyer yeah I was like, oh dear, what do I do now it 's like well okay i 'll finish law school and get my uh, Bar license, and then just see and um, that has turned out to be just a great decision for me and a great mm-hmm. a great path, so i've just been really fortunate and I started out as a, in nonprofit with the tiny, tiny little bitty nonprofit where I was the first paid staff, and then I just kind of went from different things that captured my interest and captured my heart and yeah ended up where I am today.
0: The The call to the nonprofit world, was that apparent to you two thirds of the way through law school where you thought this is not for me? How, how did that transition happen?
1: Absolutely not. <laughs> 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 Absolutely not. I had no idea. But when I was in law school, I had the really great fortune of working for uh, some lawyers who I really appreciated the kind of work that they did. Mm. Um, I just realized that I, the actual work they did, I didn't like. They were They did a lot of consumer law, and they represented um, people who had been, you know, scammed out of various things. And they were actually also involved in working at the legislature and trying to get laws passed so that um, it wouldn't happen to other people. And so I started doing a little bit of work with them over at the Capitol, Hmm. and I thought – well, this is kind of like law, but in a different way, yeah. you know, and so I started doing work at the legislature and public policy uh, was something that I felt suited me much better than the practice of law. Yeah. So when I got out of law school, a little organization I worked with it's called the Texas Consumer Association, we did what we did was uh, work at the legislature. Hmm. Uh, and then from there, then I went and worked. I had a, uh, an amazing opportunity to work with uh, migrant farm workers. And um, I was a lobbyist for the farm workers at the Texas Capitol. And I did that for a few years. So hmm. that was uh, a really an incredibly rich experience. Um, but I just sort of found myself either doing public policy work inside the state government or with, Nonprofits. Hmm.
0: What that strikes me as a as a world that is mostly invisible to the general public. the 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 lives and the the needs of of migrant farm workers. What did you learn during your time there? What What do you remember from that experience?
1: Well, I was really I've been really fortunate because I've worked several times with. Well, I've worked a lot with vulnerable communities yeah. in general, but I've worked a lot on the the border on the South Texas border, and I absolutely love that culture and the people that I met. But for the migrant farm workers, you're quite right. They were really invisible. And back in the day when I was working with them, most of the, the, uh, basic labor laws didn't apply to them. You know, they minimum wage, if they got hurt on the job, there was no workers' compensation. There was no unemployment compensation. There was none of that. And, um, Every everyone will remember or have read about Cesar Chavez's sure. great boycott and all that and his efforts to bring attention to the farm workers. Uh and there was also just so much um basically poisoning from pesticides. So there was a lot of issues that the farm workers had um that really had a the the there was a lot to do with the legislature, but working with those communities was oh just so great. I just love that. Yeah. I loved working with them.
0: That, that I used to live in California and I remember reading in a book once that the, the argument the author was making was essentially that the reason why California is a blue state and Texas is not is that there was an organized labor movement uh, in which the Democratic base had been organized by Cesar Chavez and led to a shift in um political voting it just a more organized uh, concerted effort to uh, vote in, a, in a, a systematic way related to the migrant farm workers i have no idea if that's true or not but it just made me think about that when you when you were mentioning them these are people that have generally no power um whatsoever I, i'm curious what you found to be the reception when you would bring up their plights or needs to the to the uh the government in texas
1: well over the course of many years they have really gained some power and the recognition um, that they deserve not just the migrant farm workers but the communities along the South Texas border that uh, for the most part uh, some of those counties were the you know the poorest counties in the country hmm. but there are a lot of really smart strategic people Um in those communities, who over the years I think have really made some major changes. One of the things that I did uh, at one point in my career is uh, I was appointed uh, as what's called a receiver um, to take over a bunch of um, property that the had been sold to the low-income communities along the border. They were sold a deed to their land, but it wasn't they never did get the deed. Hmm. There were all these land basically it was a big land scam. Hmm. And they had built their houses um on these properties that 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 it turns out they didn't own. And I my job was to go in there and fix it and help them sort it out who lived on which piece of property, who owned it. Um they were told they were gonna get roads and electricity and water and they didn't get any of that. Hmm. Um so I went down uh as in my capacity as a receiver working for a nonprofit. Um and helped sort it out, but you know I think what what my friends who worked with me from there would say is you know I had a platform particularly with my law degree yep. that People would say, Oh, well, she knows what she's doing. And they would say to them, Well, you don't know what you're doing, which is hundred percent false, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. they did know what they were doing. But um they didn't have a lot of voice, but they had a lot of a lot of smart and eventually they've been able to um to make some really significant gains even though of course there's a long way to go what do
0: you remember about the people from from there it's, it's it sounds just from the little you've, you've spoken about them that you think very highly of those communities and those people what what are they like for people who have never been to that part of the country or unfamiliar with that those cultures how how would you describe it
1: i'd say go go down, <laughs> go, down go down to the valley i love it um it is it is um such a culture based on community and um, just, uh, I don't even know how to describe it, but just kind of working with each other. Um, you know, I don't want to make it sound idealized, but I was so welcomed in those communities. Huh. Some of those people are, are still my dear friends, you know that I that I'm still in, t- in touch with, and they welcomed me into their homes. They invited me to the quinceañeras and their weddings, <laughs> and, and yeah. um, you know it's it's but it's a different culture. It's a culture that really celebrates celebrates the victories and works real hard for what they what they want. Hmm.
0: What were the primary needs of the of that community when when you were working with them? Was it minimum wage laws? What what, what did you notice that w- would really help?
1: Well, for the migrant farm workers, that was that was back in the eighties. So at that time, they needed a lot yeah. And uh, working with like the United Farm Workers in the Valley and Texas Rio Grande Legal Aid. Um, that we eventually got some of the basics, so they got basic. Um, Covered under uh, workers' compensation, covered under unemployment. They got some basic rights for pesticide protection, like they had to be able to um, wash their hands, really basic things. And then when I worked later down – I worked in Rio Grande City in Starr County um, with all of the contract for deed problems – and that was at a period where people were just beginning to recognize how many people had been taken advantage of through the contact, contract for deed issues, which a contract for deed is when you um, are buying your property with a on contract. So you don't get the deed at the beginning, you mm. get the deed at the end. Mm. And so there's lots of opportunity for things to go wrong. And, and in this case, a lot of things had gone wrong. So uh, there's been a lot of changes to the contract for deed uh, rules and laws, too. So that's really positive. Yeah,
0: You used the word vulnerable earlier to describe you know, a lot of the work that you've done and in the, in the populations that you've worked with. And I want to get to American Ventures here shortly. I, I, I guess I would like to just start by asking you personally, what, where did the interest in that come from personally? Do, do you have personal experience in your family working with these type of communities? How, how did you get involved in the first place?
1: You know, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not really sure. I yeah. don't have a good answer for that. Um, I was raised Catholic, and I appreciate very much that um, sense of recognizing your gifts um, and recognizing that you have an, uh, a responsibility for others. Yeah. Uh, and so, um, there was that, but, uh, I also, I had a lot of fun working with these various people. <laughs> so, um, it's not all drudgery. It's not all drudgery. No. Mm-mm. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's not all, Oh, Oh, poor me. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to go labor for the, for, for, for those who have less. That's not at all the way I've been, uh, I see it. Yeah.
0: The uh, I want to I get into the work that you're currently doing, and I, my understanding is you, you took over as a co-executive director in 2017, if I remember correctly.
1: Well, I came in as the executive director, and then just this past year we uh, became uh, we have a co-director system now.
0: Gotcha. Uh, what's the story for you entering that position? I'd be curious to know kind of what the transition, what the thinking was from you. What motivated you to want to move into that role in the first place?
1: Well, it's kind of a long story, but I'll (laughs) give you the short version. (laughs) The the job, the, the main job I had had prior to that for 10 years, I was the executive director of a nonprofit that did public policy work called Texas Appleseed. And I just had a great time. I loved the work that I was doing. I love the people. But I was getting to the point, it's kind of like, "Mm, not too much new here. So I left. Hmm. And um, it was at a point in my personal life where I could leave the country. So I left and went and spent four months uh, traveling around sub saharan Africa by myself. And had an amazing time. And what I did is I went and interviewed people there who were doing the kind of work that I had been doing here so people who had who were doing social justice work, yeah. civil society work, that kind of thing and I met these absolutely amazing people and I learned so much and the one common theme from everyone that I talked to was they wanted their country to be like our country hmm. they wanted to be like the United States. Hmm. Of course, I was there when Obama was president. Um, that didn't hurt <laughs> so sure. to, yeah. to be there at that moment. And so then I came back here, and I was kind of trying to f- figure out, okay, how can I find something where I can make a living supporting myself in Africa? And I was looking around for for things um, there. Nothing was coming. Not, nothing was coming into place. And then we had a change in the presidency here, and I thought, you know what? I should stay here and do my own tiny part to keep our country to be the kind of country that these other, uh, countries want to, uh, to model themselves after. Yep. And at the time this opportunity came up, American Gateways was looking for a new executive director and I threw my name in the hat and I was incredibly fortunate to get the position.
0: And I want to I want to talk to the, talk about that uh, the, the work that work specifically and that role specifically. But I, I I have to get some more details about your trip to Africa. Um, have you always been a like a, a capable of that kind of a nomadic lifestyle? Like, a, how how does one? You know, in the middle of their working career. That, that's an unusual story to pick up and move to Africa and start interviewing people. <laughs> Something I'd love to do at some <laughs> point. Um, how, how did you... What, what inspired you to do that in the first place?
1: I had always wanted to go huh. to Africa. I had just always been... Uh, it was just, just a goal everything about it um the colors the um what i the what little i knew about the culture just the climate yeah. I like i like hot <laughs> <laughs> i have always i had always wanted to go and i know about myself that i love traveling but i much prefer traveling when i can kind of sink my teeth Absolutely. into something yeah. and so um like i said i was at a point where i could take several months and just go travel. And so um, I did.
0: Did you just show up with a microphone? How did you access these people to be able to, to meet them all and interview them?
1: So it was it was a little bit of hard work and uh, lots of serendipitous yeah. uh, things. So I didn't know a, a soul, but I knew people who knew people. So I would ask the people that I knew to put me in touch with the people that they knew. Hmm. Um, and... I had, you know, I had this grand plan about how, when I would get on on the ground, how I would, you know, proceed. And so, the first place I went to was the Democratic Republic of Congo. Yeah. And um, so, I had had email addresses of some people that I could uh, get in touch with when I got there. I had only actually gotten in touch with one person, and fortunately, this person. Was the person i was going to be staying with because when i arrived at the ground in drc there had been a lot of protests and they had shut off internet access which i didn't even know countries did now i do now i know it's not so um uncommon yeah, but, yeah. So, <laughs> so i found myself in this country was like okay now i have to figure out some other way to reach people but you know it worked out and i did
0: so you showed up essentially knowing people through other people, not having a real agenda or itinerary. Did your friends think you were crazy?
1: Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they did.
0: Yeah. What, what was your response to them when they heard heard what the rough plan was? This does sound like a trip I would do, so I, I, I have a lot of empathy for this.
1: <laughs> well, actually, they didn't think... My good friends didn't think it was terribly crazy because I had done other... I had done other kind of things before that sort of some in character. people So yeah right <laughs> some people would say risky wasn't very risky but yeah <laughs> yeah um, but it just turned out to be so much fun yeah. Every, everybody got really tired of hearing me talk about it when I came home because I had just had so much fun
0: was it just the DRC it sounds like you went to no, multiple places I where went all, to four different
1: go? countries and I I basically spent a month in each of the four countries. So I went to DRC, I went to Kenya, Tanzania, and Ethiopia.
0: Okay. And for people who are, perhaps this is making some wheels turn in their head and they're interested in maybe creatively making something like this a reality in their own life, what, what was, if there was a process you learned that actually worked for connecting with and learning from these people, how did it how were you able to actually make that happen how did you implement, implement this successfully
1: the, to meet the people yeah. it was like i said it was it was part luck and part hard work somebody would give me the name of someone and you know the first question i would always have is this, can i use your name when i contact them you know they would say yeah And then, you know, you talk to one person and then you would talk, they would give you the name of three other people. And one of those people would come through and Hmm. I'm sure there's a way to do it much more systematically, but the way I did it, it worked. And I ended up talking to, you know, um, everybody from women's rights groups to, um, uh, to law professors, to, uh, the the nascent legal aid organizations just a whole range of of people.
0: Did you take notes? Was it just really for your own edification? What what? How did you deal with that? I component? did. I took notes, and yeah, okay.
1: and it was for my own edification. And you know, if if I liked writing, I probably would have bro- written something. But I'm not much of a writer, so yeah, uh, I haven't ever written it down, but.
0: You, you mentioned earlier that one common theme, I think, of the theme that you noticed throughout all the conversations is that these people wanted to emulate the U.S. Yeah. What specifically about the U.S. did they admire or did they want to replicate?
1: I would say the number one or maybe the number one and number two things were um, our, the transparency hmm. of our government and the fact that it wasn't based, that it was based on law. Wasn't based on any other system. It wasn't based primarily on bribes or mm-hmm. anything. It was based. It was based on law. in In the DRC, this was what five years ago, six years ago, they didn't even have all of their laws codified in one place. So these things that we completely take for granted, yeah. they're still working on. But you know, when you when you stop and reflect about the fact that they none of these countries have been their own countries for very long. Yeah. It kind of makes a lot of sense.
0: Yeah. Uh, this is a quick aside, but when I, w- when I was living in the Bay area, the only person I interviewed multiple times is a, a man named Adam Hochschild. Adam Shield wrote the book King Leopold's ghost. Oh yes. Which is about the colonization of the Congo by Belgium. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, I I had to mention that just because it sounds like you spent a decent amount of time there.
1: I did. Um, Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: Did you, and when you went over, was the intent really primarily for your own education to, you didn't really know what you would learn, but you knew you would learn something. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So then you come back to the U S and there's this massive political earthquake that's happened here. Um, it sounds like you were interested in applying your energy and talents to helping to sustain what makes America great, for lack of a better phrase. Um, What did you, what about American Ventures specifically resonated with you or was of interest to you in terms of maybe applying years of your life to their efforts?
1: Yeah, so, you know, American Gateways does direct legal services for immigrants. Mm. And I had spent my career doing public policy. I'd only spent a little bit of time doing direct service. And so, So from from the outside, it didn't look like it was going to be a great fit. But what I knew about the Trump administration was that immigrants were going to be a target. Yep that was that was pretty clear from the campaign. (laughs) Right. And so um, I felt that being able to help those immigrants who have a right under our laws and who have a right just under basic decency to pursue whatever their rights are. Um, I just felt that if I could use my experience to be of some value here in Central Texas to these immigrants, I wanted to do that. Yeah, And um, it's it has turned out to be an amazing four years, um, doing, doing that. But it, it was an organization that its mission really spoke to me at that, at that
0: time. What the the primary objective, or if there are, are multiple, what, what is, what is the, the end goal or the primary objectives of the organization generally?
1: Yeah. The, so our, our mission is to champion the rights and dignity of immigrants Including asylum seekers, those who are victims of crime, and um, and others. Yeah. So what we do is we help them get their um, immigration status. The,
0: I think for anyone who was in the country at the time of that transition from Obama to Trump, will remember the the flooding of airports by people who were protesting what was going on. I know that, I remember a scene in New York City of lawyers showing up. And offering their services to people. As a lawyer yourself, what specifically, in terms of the law, were you concerned either would be violated or what was violated in your judgment that um, necessitated some form of action?
1: Oh my gosh, there were so so many. How much time do you have? Exactly. How much time do you have? We won't we won't get into that uh, (laughs) because it was four years worth. Uh, Interestingly enough, there was not a single law that was changed during the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. It was all policy and practices like the Muslim travel ban. The very first thing, you know, it was just it was a a executive order. It was a policy. Just we're just going to do this. So there were just so many things and it was relentless. And I got to say, the Trump administration had some really, really smart people Hmm. in the administration who could find those little tiny things that would make a huge impact in people's lives, negatively impact their lives. Hmm.
0: It's funny because so much of this is about the English language and about interpretation of words and the meaning of words. And I think as you just were alluding to, people who are extremely gifted at that are able to concoct uh, or tease out of the law, plausible arguments or potentially plausible arguments from sort of esoteric language, uh, almost no one is a lawyer. And so this is kind of foreign to them. I think mostly from the population, you get these kind of emotional reactions of that's not who we are. That's not mm-hmm. what we stand for. I think mm-hmm. that's what a lot of the pushback against the Trump administration was stemming from. Um. If there are any specific, just semantic uh, observations or differences that are worth articulating, just to kind of dig into what they were trying to argue versus what had traditionally been the interpretation of the law, does anything resonate there that would be worth discussing or talking about?
1: I nothing. I'm sure if I thought about it for a moment, not not that per se, but they did things. F- For instance, they said as you're filling out an application for whatever to because you're seeking asylum or because you're trying to become a citizen, you know, there'll be like a 15 page application. If you leave a single blank empty, they reject your whole application and you have to start over. So if there's a space that says list the names of your children and you don't have children and you leave it blank. They throw out your application. So there were there were so many things like that. Oh, and then of course there's some of the big ones like um, the there were policy changes. I had said if you are seeking asylum in this country, um, but you had gone through another country first, then you then you should have sought asylum in that country. So the people who are traveling, say from Central America, should have applied for asylum in mexico and they you so you're not allowed to uh apply for asylum here so just so many things like that where you have to get really deep in in the 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 processes to to see to see that
0: you said the phrase executive order which i i think most people in this country are now through the news familiar with that as a concept but I'm not sure I really understand what the hell that means. I, I know it is something that comes out of the executive branch and not out of the legislature. And you're, I think you were mentioning the difference between a policy and a law. Right. If you could speak to the difference between the two, yeah. legally speaking.
1: Yeah, so so in the broadest terms, a law is something that is changed by, if you're talking about a federal law by Congress, mm-hmm. and um, a policy is something that's changed by the administration. And depending on the scope Well, in theory, depending on the scope of the change in the policy, it has to go through an official rulemaking process, which could take a long time and is complicated, or it can be something that is just done by the administration. So an executive order is something that the president can just do. Mm. So there were a lot of policies that were just changed. Um, For instance, um, when we saw family separation a few years ago. There wasn't any change. It was just that before when a family crossed the border seeking asylum, they were placed together Hmm. while they sought their asylum. There was a policy that says we're going to separate the the parents and, you know, the dad's going to go here, the mom's going to go here and the kids are going to go someplace else. That was just a change in policy. Just, she says (laughs) that was a draconian change in policy.
0: And in practice, A change in policy while, and correct me if I'm wrong in my reasoning here, while that is a change, that is simply a change in policy coming from the office of the presidency, in effect, it acts like a law. Absolutely. Until it is rectified or or changed by a a potential future president. Is that fair?
1: Yeah. Or in this case, the Trump administration got so much pushback for separating the families that they stopped doing it.
0: The whole idea of an executive order, I don't know, I certainly have no historical exper- expertise on whether or not the propensity of this is increasing or decreasing, but it, it strikes me just intuitively that as political polarization has increased in the country and there's just a frustration in the halls of power in the executive branch when they're unable to implement a policy, and I remember this being true about Obama as well, mm-hmm. there there would be these, um, it, it's, you know, in practice, what sounds like a temporary law that would be implemented that was enacted uh, unilaterally right. by that office. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, am I off there in nope. my assessment right, of how right. these <laughs> things <operate? laughs> You got
1: it. You got it. You, you nailed it. That's does it, it.
0: Does it strike you that these are becoming more commonly used blunt tools um in our in our government in our society or is 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 that is it just more like an availability bias that we now are hearing about them so they're being used more frequently
1: you know i don't know yeah as as um as somebody who's who's never actually practiced law (laughs) (laughs) i won't answer that good answer counselor yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah and And so
0: the the day to- day work here in Austin that the organization was getting involved with at that time when you were taking over, which must have felt like um, a a point in history for the country. I would don't want to put words in your mouth, but that made the organization even more crucial or more necessary. Um, what were the kind of fights that you guys were getting involved with on a day to day or month- to- month basis?
1: You know, I think the, th- the, the, com- the most common theme was how quickly and how often things changed, mm-hmm. because it was like when, – so when I started, which was March, after the administration had changed in January, we saw, as you mentioned, there was the Muslim travel ban, and then there was just one thing after another, then they, then they were limiting um, – The DACA rules, you know, the dreamers who could apply for dreamers. Um, I can't even remember now, but I do remember about six months in, um, I was doing a report to the board and listing all the changes. And it's like everybody's heads are just spinning. Um, But, you know, this will, I'm sure this will slow down. Well, the thing is, it didn't slow down. It didn't slow down for four years. It was just one constant change um after another so that that was that was the most common theme and and i got i just have to say that everybody who does this work but particularly like the people in my office who do this work they are just amazing resilient compassionate individuals because they are helping these individuals who have many of whom have gone through just horrific life experiences and so like our staff is helping them and listening to the stories of this horrible experience and at the same time dealing with this um this administration and dealing just dealing with all the changes it was it's been uh rough but we have amazing we have an amazing crew and what, what could be
0: done? I mean, once the executive orders, and it sounds like it was a torrent of them that just kept coming. And so mm-hmm. it was hard to keep track of what was what was law one day from the next. What, what could you do to try to push back against this? Was it just to fight these battles in the courts? How, what procedurally could be done to try to help the people you're advocating for.
1: So, you know, we talked about what I had seen when I was in Africa, yep. like like there were protests and they shut down the internet for the entire country. Right. Yep. Yep. But here we saw so much, so much activism, which is so heartening. You know, mm. we saw the young dreamers taking to the streets. We saw people rise up in arms over the family separation issues. And we at American gateways were helping in our own small way but it wasn't it was you know it was uh, it was in the national consciousness yeah um and i think part of the end result is a change in leadership the uh,
0: what were there specific things that you were trying to um fight back against or blunt the momentum of i mean what Uh, absent the work of organizations like yours, what could have happened to people or what did happen? I'd be curious to know like uh, how you would gauge the success or failures of some of the initiatives you were working on.
1: Oh, that's a really great question because one of our biggest challenges was figuring out where we put our resources and what we put our time doing. And so our, our mission is to help individuals. So our, um, our work is not to bring like impact litigation or to, you know, organize big groups. Um, And we've actually looked at whether that should be our mission. And what the answer is, yes, because there's a lot of other people doing that kind of thing, doing the impact litigation, organizing and that kind of stuff. So our, our focus is on helping individuals. But through that work, we see firsthand, a lot of the things that need to be changed hmm. so we were part of some lawsuits um we we did a lot to inform the community in general about what was going on about what had changed like uh one of the things that happened here in austin was the that there were ice raids here in austin um in when was that i think it was like Uh, And it was very early in the Trump administration. And they said that they didn't specifically target Austin, but then it came out later that they did because Austin was a welcoming community. And what we had done is we had worked with a bunch of others to educate the immigrant community. Okay, this is what you do if ICE comes and knocks on your door. Mm -hmm. You don't have to open the door. You don't have to answer their questions. You know, we had done a lot of that and we still do a lot of that educating so that we see that as our role during this, uh, well, well, even now, but particularly yeah. during the Trump administration.
0: And you were you were noting that the work is really mostly with individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for somebody potentially who is listening to this, or just generally, for people in the community to know if if they know someone who would be interested in soliciting services, how does that process work? Do they learn through their community about? Your organization generally, and that's how the connection gets made. What's the what's the the process that you that generally takes place where you get connected to individuals that could use your help?
1: Oh, you know, when I'm just sort of out and about, so few people have heard of American Gateways. They're mm-hmm. like, oh, I've never heard of you. You know, y'all need to do a better job publicizing your services. It's like, well, no. If you are a low-income immigrant. You have heard of us. (laughs) Chances are excellent. And in fact, a real challenge we have is that we can only meet about 20, 25% of the demand that we have. So the general public doesn't know about us, but the immigrant community really knows about us. And a lot of it is just because we've been here in the community for 30 plus years doing this work. There's a lot of people referring their friends. We work with a lot of other organizations that serve this community. <laughs> so we're really well known there. Yeah.
0: And are, are those individuals who know about you, the communities, I I, I can imagine they, they know about you in, in, in those, those communities. Uh, do they generally come to you because they fear deportation? Do they generally come to you because they're suffering and having a hard time adjusting in the U S like what, what, what specifically are do, it kind of incentivizes them to seek you out in the first place?
1: Yeah. So we, we work in two big Geographic areas. We work in the general community, the general immigrant community. So we do a lot of outreach in the immigrant mm. community, doing what are called know your rights presentations and informing them of their their rights and that sort of thing. Then we also work inside the federal detention centers. Our organization serves four facilities in this area. There is a women's only um, federal detention center in Hutto, just right up the road yeah. from us uh, we are working in that facility there's there's um, some others in the area that we uh, that we work in as well and so those who are detained for the most part they are seeking asylum and they have crossed the border um, asking for asylum, and then they're sent to a detention facility while their process starts. So we meet a lot of asylum seekers. So a lot of our work is is um, helping those who um, have recently arrived and who are seeking asylum. We also work a lot with Casa Marinella, mm-hmm. which is a, an amazing uh, facility here that that um, provides housing for. Um, asylum seekers so we do a lot with them and then we do a lot of work with the community that's been here for a long time people who have lived here for a long time and they're ready to get their citizenship or they are fearing deportation they might something might have happened and they're about to be deported Mm. um and then of course we also do a lot of work right now with the dreamers the young people who can now again apply for daca yeah
0: and I want to talk about how how things are going currently. the 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 people who are coming here and seeking asylum, um, and as a lawyer, but a non practicing lawyer, I, I from your in your judgment, what what is the ethical and you know roughly speaking from your from in your opinion, like philosophically, how do you think the country should be approaching? Asylum seekers in the sense that like if you meet this standard of Circumstances, Mm -hmm. we should be welcoming you right and conversely um, What is the what is the cutoff right? I mean that is also a part of the conversation that I think we have to have with ourselves just as Americans like I'd be just be curious to get your thoughts on on that Well, we have asylum laws, you know
1: that say if you meet these standards, you should be granted asylum Um, And, you know, one of the basics is, um, are you fleeing because you are in imminent danger? Yeah. You know, and so, so many of our clients um, are fleeing because they are really um, terrified. You know, I think people don't really think through why somebody would just up and move their, their country, everything that they love their family, you know, most people don't make that decision lightly by any means. And so for them, so of course, that's not true of everyone, but there are, we see so many people who have just been forced to flee for really horrific, horrific reasons. It was really interesting because when um, I was in Africa, and, um, I went to um, a party somebody invited me to go to a party and there were a bunch of um, elected officials there. And, you know, it was, it was a nice party. And the next day, someone else said to me, oh, did you bring your own drinks? And I was like, uh, no, I didn't bring my own <laughs> drinks. <laughs> and they said, oh, well, that's what most people do because um, they could be poisoned. And I thought, oh, come on, you know, are they, you know, you, you're poisoning your political enemies. It's like, this is an exaggeration. I come back. I'm doing my, my job at American Gateways, and one of our clients is from, I don't remember where, but an African country, and uh, he said, I had to flee because they poisoned me, and it didn't kill me, but I was poisoned. And it's like, oh, right. You know, things we don't even, doesn't even cross our consciousness here.
0: Yeah. And I think a lot of people don't think about as well the, the stories that I'm sure you're familiar with about what bring these people here. I think that just general thought experiment is worth Contemplating and meditating on, like what what would inspire a human being to traipse thousands of miles, risk their life to come into a a different country. I mean, I'm sure as you mentioned, there are exceptions to that rule, but that kind of motivation generally only stems from something rather existential. I would imagine. Um, What are the stories that you hear? Right. I, I think that's part of the story that is not well advertised, which is. What are these people fleeing? What have they experienced?
1: And we have we have met so many uh, people with just really horrendous stories. But the flip side of that mm-hmm. is these are incredibly strong people that are coming into this country. We the one of our clients is a woman, I, I can share her story because she she spoke publicly about it at one of our um, gatherings she was a women's rights activist mm-hmm. in, um, now I can't remember. I won't quote the country cause I can't remember exactly which one, but she was a, she was a women's rights advocate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in some of these countries are still dealing with, um, FGM. Uh, so she, she had been threatened that she needed to stop doing her, um, Her women's rights advocacy Mm -hmm. and she said I am not and they said uh, something bad is gonna happen to you or your or your children and she didn't stop she had three children she had um, two young sons and a two-year-old daughter and she came home one day and her daughter and the nanny had been murdered and she had to leave the country immediately. And she knew if she didn't, the rest of her family would be at risk. And so she finally made it to the detention center here in central Texas, hmm. where we met her and um, took her case. She had actually tried to take her case herself. And it's it, she's very smart, hmm. but the immigration... Rules are so incredibly complex that she couldn't, she couldn't connect all the dots herself. And when we got involved, we were able to help her uh, and we took her case and we got her asylum. And so she, she got established here in Austin. And then uh, a year ago, we helped her get her two sons over. She hadn't hmm. seen her sons in five years. They were five and 10 when she left and uh so now her sons are uh were over and just just a couple months ago her husband was able to join her and she's she is just the most delightful woman you know but such a strong uh advocate for what she believes in who paid such a huge price
0: what was her country of origin
1: well that's what i can't remember south america or no it was 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 africa okay Mm -hmm. yeah yeah
0: um That process of actually getting the green light and being able to become a legal asylee here, is it extremely lengthy and difficult? How hard is it for someone like her and that uh, example that you just gave to legally be able to be in the United States as an asylum seeker?
1: It so depends on circumstances mm-hmm um so uh and this is one of those parts of the process that is changing so uh rapidly because it had been you would uh in like probably in her case i don't remember but she would probably come to the border and and tell the border patrol that she was seeking asylum hmm. and that would start the process but then um what was it a year and a half ago that Trump put in place the policy, the remain or two years ago, the remain in Mexico policy where he was not allowing people to come and present their case at the border and be allowed to enter. And they were told to remain in Mexico until your court hearing could come up. Hmm. And so that was, people have been waiting more than a year um, remaining in Mexico and then if you're put into the a detention facility that starts one process and if you're if you're not put into the detention facility that starts a different process so hmm. it it could be anywhere from months to years
0: it's so much of this is about the law and what we you know, I, I think as, as a non-lawyer myself my my father's a lawyer um when an executive order like that is implemented whereby a new law a new temporary law, a new executive order is established that changes historic precedent, does the new law immediately supersede prior law and there therefore is at least for the duration of that administration the law of the land
1: it's policy it's policy and so, for the country for, for america the, for the country but one of the things that made this past four years so exhausting is that a policy would be implemented and then it would be challenged in court and then sometimes it would be reversed sometimes it would not be it would it would be like a bouncing ball and so um there was there was just no um no certainty and no stability
0: yeah and an executive order is established as soon as the president's signature is on that executive order. Is that how this works?
1: Yeah, but see, these weren't all done through executive orders. These, some of these were mm. just policy changes. Some of them were executive orders, uh, but some of them were just policy changes that the administration made.
0: Mm. But each have the same effect in the in the sense that it is now changing the way the, Meri- the way America is dealing with immigration.
1: Right. It's changing whatever that particular piece is until either it gets reversed, you know, like it gets challenged in court. That's what happened with um, DACA with the the dreamers, the the poor dreamers. Oh, my gosh. So, you know, they Trump had said that he wasn't going to stop the process, then he did. And then he said, Okay, if you've already got your DACA status, you can keep it every you it would be renewed every two years. And Anyway, it just went back and forth and back and forth, and then it finally went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, you didn't do the rules right, so young people can apply for DACA again. And then they said, okay, well, we're going to go back and redo the rules, and this time we're going to do them right. And so then you couldn't apply for DACA again, and it just went, it was just like, you just get like, whiplash just watching things bounce back and forth and back and forth.
0: And here in Austin, real people are living real lives.
1: Absolutely. And Absolutely.
0: How how did that bouncing ball changing every couple days or every couple months affect the people that you saw and you were working with here?
1: Well, like I said, s- these are um, th- the... The young people who've been organizing around DACA are amazing. (laughs) They they have done such an incredible job. Um, And part of what they've done in their organization, in their organizing, is not just we need to change the law, but they also are saying to their colleagues, okay, stay strong. Mm. You know, we're going to win this. It may not be today. It may not be tomorrow, but um, stay strong. But uh, the... The up and down of it, it, if we think it was exhausting for us and our staff, I can't imagine how exhausting it's been for the the dreamers.
0: Did you get a sense of what those years were like for the communities that you work with here, whose lives are really kind of hanging in the balance here based upon what the outcome
1: is? Oh, so many. So many. And so many people have just they they've been waiting for their court hearings and then it would get postponed for various reasons and then with the pandemic things have been um postponed for such a long time and so many people's lives have just been put on hold and um you know we've had so many clients that's like can't you can't you help us can't you do anything mm-hmm. and there's we can't, yeah. we can't, we can't make the court process go any faster.
0: Yeah. And this, I don't know if you would agree with this, this assessment, but like th- this does speak to the power of the presidency and the, impo- the, the difference that one position really does make in these communities. Is Absolutely.
1: That Absolutely. It does. Yeah.
0: I think for, I think a lot of people are familiar with the dreamers or have seen stories about dreamers on, on the nightly news it, for for those who are not familiar, I know we've been talking about this for the last ten minutes or so. What what are we talking about here? Who are these kids? What, what's their story?
1: Yeah, we're talking about uh, people who came here um, as children, uh, and who so to qualify for uh, the DACA status, you had to have come here as a child. Um, you have to have had you have to either have graduated from high school or gone into the military so you have to you have to be you know a basically an upstanding young person um but you have to be someone who so basically this is your home yeah because you came as a kid yep. right and so this is the home that you know this is where you've been raised most of them uh english is their is what they speak you know and so this is this is who they are and this is where they this is where they call home. Yeah. And so to, um, so the debate has been, should they be allowed to stay here? They didn't, they didn't make the choice to come. Um, they're here. Uh, they've been educated here. Should they have a right to stay here? And I think, uh, most people when they, when they look into it would say, yes, absolutely. They do.
0: Yeah. And when you come here as a kid, is there a cutoff age that, you know, is techno makes you a technical dreamer?
1: Mm -hmm. in that regard Mm -hmm. and i should know that off the top of my head but i don't somewhere i let my lawyers (laughs) 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 all my lawyers know that off the top of their head (laughs) fair enough
0: um the uh, you know it's been i think a crazy past year or year and a half for everybody but I, i have to imagine especially for for you and the organization generally um there must have been a lot of ups and downs and high anxiety um it's now, we're doing this interview at the end of April in 2021. How are we in your judgment as, as the leader of, the, of your organization and just as a, you know, an, a person who's been involved in this type of work, ethically um, speaking, how do you think the US is doing currently? What What do you think in your judgment needs to be done to um, uh, render some more justice to this w- world that you operate in?
1: I think it's far past time that we had comprehensive immigration reform. Mm. We haven't changed the laws in decades. Um, And we get asked frequently, well, you know, what about all those people who are waiting in line to get in? It's like, yeah, there are a lot of those people because we haven't changed how that works in a really long time. Mm. And we've had people, we've... uh, uh, In fact, right before the, the cutoff, we were, we were doing a big citizenship clinic with a, um, uh, like a hundred people who were, who were applying for the citizenship on one Saturday. It was really, it was really heartening to see all of these people. But someone told me that, um, a family member had been waiting on the wait list to get in for 23 years. (laughs) You know, so is this a fair system? Right. You know, so, uh. I think we need comprehensive immigration reform.
0: Do you think that would be just in terms of like energy applied and outcome results, uh, that would stem from that, that would be the best bang for the buck in terms of, um, helping a large swath of people who have been waiting for a long period of time. Is that, is that really like the, uh, the best way is the best single act or the best single way to apply energy to try to help these circumstances?
1: I think that's the long game. Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. In the meantime, uh, there's a lot more that can be done, and I don't think we're looking at comprehensive immigration reform without more change in um, the in, in Congress. Hmm. So I, I think we're. I don't think we're ready to have that conversation yet. So I appreciate everyone who is educating themselves around immigration issues and the complexities of those issues and what's all involved. Um, you know, uh, in fact, somebody said to us last week, well, you know, um, you know, I'm curious about your organization. Cause why are you helping? Why are you helping these people who are not here legally? And it's like, you know, it's not nearly that straightforward. All of those asylum seekers who, you know, there's, there's a judgment call. Are they here legally? And for most of the people that we help, sure enough, the courts, when their case comes before the court, they are granted asylum. Yeah. You know, so we, so what we do, we don't do anything that's illegal. We inform people about what their rights are on how to exercise their rights um, how to, how to work within the current system that we have. Yeah. And, uh, for a number of people, for the majority of people, um, they have a a right to, they have a pathway to legal status.
0: Yeah. Uh, I think that is a very important point to make because there, there does seem to be a zeitgeist that has bubbled up. I I think in America around the idea that, um, you know, there is rampant illegality going on related to these communities in the country. And I, I I don't know if this is quite how you would phrase it, but there is historic legal precedent for legal rights that these individuals have have had in this country historically. Mm -hmm. And it it is in the spirit of that, uh, in the spirit of those laws that organizations like yours are are trying to operate within.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, we are operating within the legal framework of this country. Absolutely.
0: Mm -hmm. So for people in Austin who are listening to this and are intrigued, or they love the work that you do, how can people in the community help? What what do you what could you need, or what would your ask be for citizens around here?
1: Yeah, well, we would welcome the support of the, the community. And depending on your um, skill set and your time, we have a variety of ways people can get involved. Uh, where, our, If you speak another language, we very often need uh, translators and interpreters um, for every language. Uh, Last Hmm. year, we served people from over 70 different countries. So we deal with a lot of different languages and everything that you file in the immigration court has to be filed in English. So so if you don't have somebody translating, uh, you're in a bit of a pickle. Um, So uh, we we use. Um, an amazing number of pro bono attorneys, uh, who can help our clients in a whole bunch of different ways, either co-counseling with our staff or taking on cases or helping with our clinics. Um, and then for the general people, um, public, we have lots of specific needs, but we also, we really, uh, are trying to, uh, encourage more people to follow us on fo- social media, stay aware of what's going on, just, uh, just becoming involved. And then of course, um, I wouldn't be worth my salt if I didn't say you can always make a donation. And, you knew that one's coming. I, I, it's, it's
0: always a component. It's, it's a component of life. Um, and and for, for those people who, let's say, they do speak a second language or they have some skill set that, that they would be interested in sharing, what is the best way for them or how can they best get in touch with the organization to begin to inquire about that possibility? We make
1: it so easy. <laughs> <laughs> you, you go to americangateways.org and you click on Get Involved. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Um, Yeah. uh, Before I ask the last question, I just want to say not only thank you for the time, but thank you for the effort and the energy that you, and I know you would say your entire staff, uh, puts forward to give voice, give some power, give some support to people whose lives are probably difficult for many people like myself to really understand Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the difficulties that they have experienced. And uh, you know, personally as an American, I think that is something that I, I also have always loved about this place that it is a, it it is a, it's a people vote with their feet and people want to be here. And I think America has generally rightly had a reputation of being a generous place Mm -hmm. and a generous, um, people. Um, so just to recognize you and to say thank you for what you're doing. And I know I speak on behalf of a lot of people around here who, uh, who feel that way.
1: Um, well, I feel really grateful to be able to do what I do and particularly with the amazing, uh, staff and volunteers that I get to work with.
0: Yeah. To close, I would love to, you probably have done a number of, of interviews. Um, I'm sure a lot of people ask you about the work that you do. I want to just give you in closing an opportunity to speak to any myths or misnomers or, um, incorrect information that you see floating around the culture that you think is worth correcting, or if nothing comes to mind, there just a a piece of information or uh, a a method of educating the general community that you think is is important to inform them about to better have a narrative about the work you're doing or uh, about the stories of immigrants and refugees that you think is important to share.
1: Well, I think the first thing to recognize is that everybody's human. Mm. They're human. We're human. And what, what binds us all together is that humanity. Uh, they're not perfect people. We're not perfect people. Yep. Um, but all of us have so much to contribute and I think recognizing in so many ways what the immigrant community contributes, you know, you know, people talk about a lot about, well, those are the people who are building our houses or serving us in restaurants. But I think it's just so much more than that, that, that um, we're just all uh, culturally and humanly richer by mixing. And I think that's one of the great things about the United States is we have such an incredible rich culture and variety here.
0: Yeah. Well, I want to wish you all the best and I I hope um, the future looks brighter for a lot of people who are extremely vulnerable. And um, again, I think I speak for a lot of people in the community in in saying that and um, wish all the best.
1: Well, thank you very much for visiting. My pleasure.